Thanks be to God. You guys can have a seat. All right, so I said this is uh, Exodus ideas, and you may be going, what does uh, this have anything to do with Exodus? Let's look at Luke. We're going to pull out real quick uh, and, and kind of go back to Luke 9. I have mentioned this in passing in one of our Exodus series. So we've been in Exodus. We've talked about what it means that the people of God were called out into the wilderness. They were called to follow, G- or to follow Yahweh. And that then so many people in the New Testament and beyond have referenced and made this like re- reference to Jesus being a new and better Moses. And, and what I think that means for us and what we said in our series is that means that Jesus in some way is calling us out of something into something. He's calling us away from what we know and what we understand. And in a lot of ways, it is a wilderness wandering that we live in for our entire lives on this side of eternity. We call it Lenten seasons, Lenten lands, Advent. These these seasons of waiting and longing that we celebrate in the church calendar are seasons that really define the entirety of the Christian life. In so many ways, it is this thing that we're all too familiar with because we're longing and we're waiting and we're expecting to see God move and sometimes it doesn't happen the way we think it should and it doesn't make sense and it it is not the fulfillment of what we know is to come and so we hold on to a promise. But in the meantime, what God is doing is he's calling us out into that as we are kind of being called into this waiting, longing, expecting season. What he is doing is he is giving us a way and an ability to become a new type of culture and society in the world that we find ourselves. And this is what he did with Exodus. He called them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, into something else that required them to fully trust and have faith in him, that he knew what was good and right, and that he was going to set things into place that would allow them to flourish and experience life and fulfillment and joy in the way that it was intended to at the beginning of creation. But what they had to do is they had to trust that God's way of wisdom and knowledge and that God's definition of good and evil was what was the true definition. And they had to then die to themselves and submit to that and say, okay, that our way of functioning, our way of being, our way of existing can no longer be. And they had to give it over. We we talked about that again and again and again. So there's this really cool thing that happens in Luke's gospel. I think Luke, of all the gospel writers, is probably the one. Like his Jesus is probably, at least in my mind, in my eyes, somebody could disagree and they'd be totally right. But in my sight, I, I think that his Jesus is the one that is the most kind of like poignantly put in that position of the new Moses. And it all starts in Luke 9. And and this is a familiar passage, even if you don't know the scripture reference, but it's when Jesus ascends up onto a mountain. There's all this Exodus language that's starting to happen already. He goes up and he takes with him his three closest disciples and they go up there and, and then we see Elijah and we actually see Moses come down and there's light and there's smoke. And and this is like Sinai. If you're a Hebrew reader or now that you've read Exodus and we've gone through, this is what it should be doing to you. You're going, oh, this is Sinai. He's gone up. Something's happening. He's transformed. Something's taking place here. And he's declared that he is the son of God. And his disciples hear it. The language that Luke uses when he says that it is time for him to go, the Greek word for him to go on this journey and to to begin his process of this ministry that he is called to is the same Greek word that is used in the Septuagint that means to exodus. And I think it's very intentional that Luke wants you to see that he is replacing what is happening. He is fulfilling what is happening. He is extending what is happening. 
in those passages. And Jesus is this person. And then what happens is from Luke 9 until they finally get to Jerusalem, there's this chunk of passages in the middle. I think it's in Luke 19, if my memory serves me correctly, where they finally get there. It's this journey. And the whole way, it's this journey language that's being used again and again, wandering language that's being used again and again as Jesus makes his way with his disciples up to Jerusalem. And the whole time, the language that's being used of him and his disciples is the same language that is being used when talking about the people of God as they wandered and journeyed in the wilderness to the promised land. And so you should see all this overlap. And in Luke's gospel, it's really cool. There's three, four sections, depending on how you want to break it up. And a lot of it's very narrative-based. It's very like, this is the story. This is how Jesus was born. And then like he spends a ton of time in the passion event at the end. And it's very narratival with Jesus' teaching and, and profound theological moments poked in there. But in this journey section, in the middle of Luke, where we find ourselves, chapter 14, is like right in the heart of it. This is where we get the majority of Jesus' teachings. And it's almost like Luke is trying to say, at least in my interpretation, I think Luke is trying to say, if you want to go on this journey, if you are going to exodus with Jesus, if you're going to go and, and become this new people, if you're going to step in and be this new society, this new culture, this is the way it's done. And I say that because we highlight this again and again. It is not that he is laying out a template for a certain type of human morality. It is not that he is laying out a template for like this is the ways exactly that in order that you might obtain an eternal salvation. No, I, I think what Jesus, what the, Luke is doing with the teachings of Jesus in this moment is he is saying if you want to step into this in the way that the people of God were called to step out of slavery, the way they were called to step out of the oppression that they found themselves in, and to experience a life that God intended them to experience, to interact with God in the way that he intended to interact with them from the moment creation was formed, then this is the way you have to live and function. It's a a slight nuance, I get it. But I think that it's a nuance that really matters because then when we ask ourselves certain questions and we wrestle with certain things, and I think what is easier for us to do is then to say, okay, yeah, 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 like I get it. But like if, if I'm going to give myself to Jesus, I have to live the way that Jesus calls me to. Like it's the only way that makes sense. It's the only way this becomes possible. And it is not your salvation it, by works, all that stuff, but there is something that is asked of you. Your life is asked of you. Your dreams, your desires are asked of you. And what is beautiful about God, and I know this because I've experienced it, is that it is not that he is anti-desire and passion and dreams and any of that. God longs for your desires to be fulfilled. He just wants your desires to be his desires first and foremost. He longs for you to have a rich and abundant life. This is the garden imagery is that there was more than enough. And it wasn't, like, there's no scarcity in the economy of the gospel. There's not a lack of resources. You are not called to live. I mean, maybe some of us will live a more monastic life. Maybe God does call you for some reason to do something that is more aesthetic in in its nature or design. But the reality of it is, is the story of the gospel and the story of scripture is one of where God lavishes good things onto his people. And he longs for your desires. And when your heart breaks for the desires of your heart, his heart breaks with you. 
He's broken when, when we don't get to achieve and realize the things that we want to achieve and realize. Okay, so but his desire is, is that your desires would be for the sake of the kingdom, that your heart would be for what his heart is for. It's a scary thing to pray. And oftentimes we pray it and we say it, and just like the people of the Old Testament, and just like the people of the New Testament, we say, yeah, 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 I want that. And then when the opportunity presents itself, we go, yeah, I don't think I really want that. It doesn't sound like what I actually signed up for. I think I signed up for something else. I must have clicked the wrong button. And so they, this is happening. Because as our passage starts in chapter 14, or at the middle of chapter 14, almost the end of chapter 14 here, what you see is that there's these large crowds gathering. I think what Luke wants us to see in this moment is that Jesus is sensing that a lot of people are, are, are they're excited. They're, they're pretty pumped that this thing is like, there's this, this momentum. And this might be the guy, because this is a Jewish context. And they, from the moment of being exiled out of Jerusalem into Babylon and then getting to come back, they have been longing and waiting for almost like, 500 years at this point, you know, six, 700 years from the first time they start to get exiled. Like they've been longing and waiting for someone to come to bring this fulfillment and this freedom that they have known that God had intended to give to them. And they see Jesus and they're getting excited. And they're like, yeah, 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 this is it. It's happening. We're in. Like the, the thing's coming into fruition and we're finally going to get it. And, and the crowds are coming around and he's working miracles. And there's all these different reasons why they probably wanted to join in on the crowd. But what Jesus is able to sense in his heart and in himself is this idea that they're not coming to follow him. They're coming to uh, partake in an idea they're coming to partake in, in the, what they have fashioned, of what they think the Messiah should be. And they're hoping, and you'll see it all through the Gospels, all four of them highlight this, that what they begin to do is they begin to project onto Jesus their ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And what Jesus is graciously doing to them again and again is not belittling them. He is not mocking them. He is not like uh, reprimanding them. He is simply saying, if you are going to follow me, it has to be the way that I've laid out. And you have to count that cost. And, and the whole section we're in, there, there's a long kind of list of these things that are, are happening here where Jesus is saying, like, this is the way the kingdom is. This is the way the kingdom functions. And I'm inviting you into it. But if you are going to step into this way of being, this way of existing, it's going to cost you something. And it's going to cost you more than you're probably willing to reckon with. Because you're here for hype, I think. You're here for good looks, maybe. The crowds have formed. And Jesus is saying, I know a lot of you have not taken stock. You have not counted the cost of what it means to be my disciple. And I don't think he says that in any kind of like rude or angry way. I think he says it in a sincere and honest way because it's the only way I know how to read and understand Jesus is that he meets them where they are. and He says, I hear you. I see you. I understand it. But I need you to know this will cost you something. And so he starts with something that seems really even to our ears and imagine in a society that revered mothers and fathers in the way that Jesus' society did. He goes as far to say that you have to hate 
your mother, father, brother, sister. Now let's stop for just a moment and focus in on that word hate. It is not uh, being used here in the same way that you and I would use it. It's not in the same way that Kyle hates cheese. Like, it's not a disdain for it. Uh, maybe it, it, we see it used in the Old Testament like uh, Leah is hated in comparison to Rachel and that like tension. There's other moments where somebody is saying you have to hate one to love the other. But just before this, Jesus' teaching has been told to us that what it has said is that you're to, like the greatest commandment. All of the law can be boiled down to love your neighbor as yourself. But he says here you're supposed to hate yourself. So like what's happening here, right? Common rhetorical play or movement that is in ancient Near Eastern thought, especially Hebrew thought and mind, was to say something like that would be to say like you just love the other more than. But it's not that you actually have a disdain towards. Let's go with a really lame example here to help us understand. I love both Dr. Pepper and Coca-Cola, right? But I like Coca-Cola more. So like in this language that he's using, in this rhetorical play, it would, you know, I, I would say, if you want to be my friend, you, like me, must hate Dr. Pepper and love Coca-Cola. I actually like both. I'll drink both. Not that often, but it's, when it's a treat, it's a treat, you know? Uh, Coca-Cola people know what I'm talking about. You're the real ones, true believers. Uh, but you, you get these moments, and like he's just saying, like you don't actually have to like have a disdain for it or, or an ill will towards it. It's just a rhetorical way of saying that you have to love this other thing more. It has to be your priority. It's in the negative, right? Instead of saying love me more than you love your mother and father, he says hate your mother and father in the way you would love me. Just that, like it's it's clearly lower. It is not elevated above. That's like. That's asking something of you. That Jesus would look at you and say that like above your family, above all else, I must be your priority. I must take preeminence over all of your life. My ways, my being, what I'm calling you into, this path of discipleship must be the number one thing you give yourself to. And he's saying if that is the case, then you have to like take stock of that. What does that mean? That this is the way, that this is the, the pro prominent thing that you're supposed to do. So he gives some examples. Like, how many of you would go to build a tower and not think about the cost, not think about what that means? And if you couldn't do it, you wouldn't endeavor into it because especially in a, a shame culture like the ancient Near East, if you started building a project and you had to stop, like... I'm annoyed by the house on the corner of our street that has been being remodeled for four years just because like, I'm just like, I just want it done. It's an eyesore and the, the weeds get grown up. But I don't like, I don't think ill of those people. I'm like, I get it, man. I ain't got any money either. Like you had to stop. Like good on you. Maybe you're just trying to prevent debt and that's a better way to live, you know? Like sure, go for it. It's not the route I took. Give me that HELOC, but, you know, that's for old people jokes right there. Um, but, like, th there's this moment, this place, this thing that happens where, like, in that culture, like, if you would have set out on a project and you would have, like, been unable to fail, like, that would have brought great shame upon you and your household. He's saying you would have made sure you could finish this. You would have known what it was going to cost. Also, by the way, in the background of this is the rebuilding of the temple, and this idea and this fact that the temple was not built back to the way that it was supposed to be. It, was, it never achieved the status. It never achieved the splendor and the glory and the beauty that the original temple had. 
And that's not lost on Jesus' hearers in this moment. Like that there was something being built, and oh yeah, by the way, Jesus has already predicted that that thing's going to be destroyed. Like there's this thing where it's not just the cost, but it's the why. What are you doing in it? Do you not assess what, like, what, what your, your heart is towards this thing? And so Jesus is saying you have to understand when you set out on journeys, when you set out on philosophies, beliefs, ways of existing, you need to take stock of what you're giving yourself to. And I think he's saying this like both in just like a, obviously as him following Jesus, but like this is just the way you have to live. Everything you give yourself to is shaping, forming, it's becoming something. It's, it's allowing you to become something. And what is that thing that you are becoming? What is the cost of the thing that you're doing? This is, Paul's going to expand on this later. Of Everything is beneficial or everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial because what are you doing and becoming and participating in that? What is the cost? And Jesus wants his disciples to understand the cost. The next analogy he gives is one of war. If you know, you're, you know, I, mean, I don't know if any of you have been in this situation, but like tensions ever get uh, kind of rowdy in, in certain situations and you know, you, you're like, oh, I think it'll be okay. And then like a big dude walks around the corner and you're like, okay, we got to solve this quick. Like this is bad news. I did, I went to a public uh, party school in, in my undergrad, and I had this one friend that was like 6'6", six, six, like 240, all muscle, he, Division One football player. And like, I just knew in the back of my mind, no matter what situations we got in, like when he came in, like the other side was going to be like, Let, let's, let's get peace on the table. Like, everything's cool, we're leaving, we didn't mean to bother your house, like we're going to dip out. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Like, if you know you are overmatched and outgunned, outmanned, whatever it may be, like, you are going to just go like, hey, like, let's, we're, we're not going to go there. If you know the cost, if you know the inevitability of what will happen to you if you continue down that path, then the obvious and the wise thing to do is to go like, okay, we need to, we need to abandon ship here. We need to course correct. Discipleship. And I think in the background of this is also this idea that there is something about when you are looking at who Jesus is and he's asking something of you and you're resisting. He's saying, do you not know that I will overwhelm you? Like my way will win. My way is the way that is going to prevail. So would you not rather just acknowledge peace now? Make peace with who I am in my way because like, the way of the Lord, the Yahweh will prevail. Jesus will reign victorious. And so I think that that's kind of in the background here, that he's playing on that. Also in the background is the disciples that I had mentioned that had their own ideas of what a Messiah was supposed to be, that were consistently asking God or asking Jesus, like, is this now the time where Yahweh will like, descend and will overthrow Rome? And there, there's warmongering. There's these ideas and these things that we think we need to build and hold on to and that we think we need to pursue and fight that are passed down from generation from generation that are old ideas that are, are just like engraved into what we think it means to follow Jesus or to follow the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, don't you think that maybe like, those things aren't necessary? Like there's a new way of being, there's a new way of existing, and I'm laying it out for you, like come follow me. And then he goes on to continue to teaching in Luke's gospel, and he's going to give all these parables of this is the way the kingdom is. Not one of needing to rectify or build up or erect is the word I was looking for there, not rectify. 
erect these monuments and these things here on earth. Not this warmongering, not this like way of taking over by force and by power. But the kingdom of God is uh, one of a lost sheep being found. It's the abandonment of all that are in the safe kind of inclusion and going and getting the one that no longer is in with the fold. The kingdom of God is this upside down, totally different way of seeing the world around you. And I actually prefer to say the language of it. It's more of a right side up. I think for so many people in humanity, we, we do this thing where we're actually flying upside down. We're living life in an upside down sort of way. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to find you and he wants to turn you right side up. And he wants you to see the world the way it was meant to be seen. Scripture, prayer, worship, what it does to us is it allows us to look through windows and to potentially start knocking on and opening up doors that help us see into the way that reality is meant to be seen and experienced. Gathering here helps us see that the reality that so often that we know and experience and understand is not the one that, is, uh, that God intended for us to experience. There's something truer, greater, more real, more deep, more substantial, something that will not fade away. And yet most of us give ourselves to building towers and warmongering. And most of the time we pursue things that we'll never be able to finish or never be able to complete. But what Jesus is offering is a life in a way of something that is already completed and already finished and something that will never rust or decay. A life of peace and of abundance, a life of joy, a life of profound sense of knowing that you are in the space that God intended you to be in. But it comes at a great cost. And I think far too often, many of us do not count the cost correctly myself included. It is way too easy for us to fall into the same trap again and again of just thinking that this is what I can do. This is the way life should be. And we abandon or we start to take in. And I love this idea of family. As I've studied more on my own emotional health and journey and become a parent and been married for a decade almost like there's this thing that begins to happen where you realize like how much of your family life, your family origin, your family history like dictates the way you see and function in the world around you. There's this thing that happens, uh, there's a, a theory, it's called a family systems theory, which is just this, this way of the, like there's anxieties in you, there, there's certain like innate responses to you that you subconsciously operate out of that you have no idea where they come from or even know that you are operating out of them because they're just like they were ingrained in you as a kid. And what's really funny in, in my own life is I've done this journey and I've sat with others and I've processed some of these things, like you begin to think that like you're actually reacting against, you're like, I'm doing things way different than my parents. And on this like surface level, you are, you're like doing everything exactly the opposite of the way your mom and dad did it. But like on this like next level down, the same anxieties and the same systems are actually driving your behavior. They're actually driving your responses to the way you interact with your friends, the goals you've set for your life. You maybe just like name them different things or like dress them up in a different way. May not be, you know, a life on Wall Street. It may be to be the best like musician that you've ever like could possibly be and, and like to be great. But like it's these things, these subconscious things. 
And what's cool about family systems theory is as you study it, is like everything has a system. Like there's, a, there's like anxieties and things and, and built-in responses. And that would be true of us. Like Mosaic, we've been around. It'll be 15 years in January. Praise be to God. Like we have systems and anxieties that we all feel and we affect one another. And, and like there's this thing where we're all connected. And what they'll say is like you can take that out and like those systems grow. And like because you live in America, there are anxieties that you carry that are subconscious to you in some way. And some of them you can't escape. You learn to name them and understand them. And I think what the gospel is offering us is this opportunity and this ability in this moment when Jesus is saying like you have to hate your mother and your father. You have, to, like, you have to hate yourself. I think what he's saying in these moments is look at the way the kingdom is. Look at the way it exists and it operates and it functions. And in this space, the way that you think you're supposed to go through the world is just not the way you're supposed to go through it. And there are all of these things where I think that we are just blind to cultures. By the way, it's plural cultures. There's lots of cultures. There's no like just one culture out there. We have a culture, your family has a culture, your work has a culture. There's all these things you participate in that dictate how you respond to things that oftentimes are counter to the way of the cross, to the way of Jesus. And sometimes they're really helpful, and sometimes they're not necessarily bad. They're just indifferent. You just need to know them and name them. But I think Jesus is saying, like, above all else, the way you think, function, operate, see the world, it has to be radically changed. The way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you think about friendships, the way you think about family, it has to fundamentally change in the economy of the gospel and the way of Jesus Christ. This is discipleship. This is what we're being called to. The same passage it shows up in all three gospels in slightly various ways. Um, this idea that we should move on from our family and our systems and these things, and I think that that could be true. Another passage I think similar that shows up in all the Gospels, and it's in Luke 8, I think, if I, my notes are correct. Luke 9, Mark, or Matthew 12. I couldn't remember which chapter it is in Mark. But there's this space, uh, you guys know this uh, moment well as, as I explain it to you, where Jesus is teaching and his family comes to him. And he says, this is my, like, your, your brothers and your mother, they, they want to talk to you. And he looks at his disciples and he says, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Like, these are the, 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 this is my family. And I see these in a lot of ways, like, connected in my brain for me. And I think that there's this thing that's happening here. It's not, again, it, it is not dunking on families or, like, saying, like, oh, you should just never go home and see your parents or whatever it might be. Like, the, oh, you just go do your own thing. But there, there's this thing, this idea in marriage. Young married couples, old married couples, you all experience this. But Dan Allender, great therapist, psychologist, will say that in marriage, that almost every major problem, you can boil it down to the inability to leave and cleave, which is a good biblical way of referencing back to Genesis 2, that the man will leave his family and cleave to his wife. And they become one. They become this, their own thing that exists, that is different than, and they function on their own. They should have their own systems and their own cultures and their own way of being. And if the gospel and marriage are oftentimes overlapped, I think that the, what Jesus is getting at here in those spaces and, and oftentimes in our own lives is this inability to completely leave the way in which we are and who we think we are and to cleave purely to Jesus. But I think that's our invitation today. 
is to examine our lives in the ways of what it means that we should leave the life behind and cleave to the way of Jesus. That we should be willing to let go of so many things that we want to hold on to, our definitions of success, power, status. And these are subtle ways, and this, that's, the, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about with families as I say that out loud. Like, there's so many ways where you can think to yourself, like, oh, I'm anti-status. Like, I'm anti-whatever. Like, I'm, I'm underground. I'm cool. And you look at two people, and you go, you're really just doing, playing the same game. Like, there's ways in which we think we've left those things, and we're just calling it something else. We're operating something else. And the invitation from Jesus is that he wants to radically change your whole life, everything about you. But it's going to cost something. It's going to ask something of you. And it's going to make you live in such a way that like everything about how you approach things is going to have to be different. And in that little passage in, Luke, uh, or in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, when he has that, those words on the lips of his Jesus, right before that there's this story of Jesus teaching about how that someone had been cleansed or a demon had been cast out. And he uses this parable of a house that looks nice and pretty on the outside. But on the inside, it's empty and it's hollow. And that spirit that has been cast out and rejected, it'll go and wander around and then eventually it'll come back because nothing has filled up the house in which it's left. And then immediately he goes to this language of Jesus' family. And Jesus, there's all this language of outsider and insider, people sitting at the feet, disciples, not disciples with Jesus' family and the disciples that he names as his family. And then that language continues into this story and it, Luke's doing a similar thing here. And there's this idea of your life needing to be filled up with something profound and good in the way of Jesus. The, the, an opening and a, and a receiving of the Holy Spirit and letting your life be full of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that happens when you do this thing, when you give yourself over to Jesus in this kind of way. You will not be empty, and yet I think for so many of us, we stand like that, we look Put together on the outside. And I'm not just talking about social media, though that's true and that's an easy one to like hit, you know. Like we, we present this life, we present this way of being. But I think the person we deceive the most is ourselves on this. And this is the thing about family systems theory, and I'm gonna land this plane. The thing is, is like what they talk about in it is, is so often that it, it's a hard work to do. Because it's a really hard work to look back in your life and actually confront the pain and the harm that was done to you along the way. It's really hard to acknowledge the needs we have. It's easier to explain something and to caveat something and to write something off and to be like, well, they just like, you know, they, they tried their best. Friendships, relationships. It's easier to just kind of be like, you know, like, like they didn't really mean it. And maybe they didn't mean it in like that they wanted to hurt you, but a lot of times, like, no, they're being, I, I can look at my own life, and when I have to go and apologize to my five and three-year-old, yeah, I didn't mean to make them cry, but what I did mean was that I wanted life to go exactly the way I thought it should go, and I wanted to be in control. I meant to keep my life in control, and that harmed them, okay? And one day when they grow up, they're going to have to acknowledge that, that dad harmed me at times because he was selfish, and they're going to have to name that. 
But that's going to be hard for them. And it's going to be painful for them to name that. And it is the same in our life. It is there are pains and there are difficulties in our lives that we're going to have to name. That we're going to have to confront. Because it's easier to give an explanation than it is to admit that you are in desperate need of a Savior. To admit that things went wrong or to admit that you're broken, that there are flaws in you. To admit that things weren't perfect or to admit that you now are not perfect. And you're in desperate need of Jesus to enter into your life and to redeem you from the pit. But if you don't acknowledge all the faults and brokenness, then you're, you're not even in a pit. So why would you need the pit? So there's this thing that happens as Jesus calls us. We don't want to acknowledge these things and we lie to ourselves and we convince ourselves. And the reality of it is, is most of us haven't even like taken enough time to be honest with ourselves to actually see our story for what it is. Dan Allender again here, and this is totally disconnected from the marriage book, but he says that, that, like, that many of us, or the number one thing you have to tell someone that's doing story work of their own life is to convince them over several months that they don't know their own story. Because they've written a narrative that has helped them cope and get through life. And I think the same is true as we sit before the feet of Jesus, that so many of us have convinced ourselves. Have, and the thing is, we, did, we, we had to survive, we had to be, we had to exist, we had to move on. But we've done something, that is, uh, we've written a story that is not true, and we've convinced ourselves we're fine. We've convinced ourselves we're good and we're ready to move on. And so we think we're living this really pretty life, but inside we know the pain. And if you just ask yourself, I think so many of us know this. The things we're pursuing and the things that we're doing, the things that we trade in for the depth and the realities of the gospel, if you just ask yourself, is it working? Are you actually happy? Are you actually filled with peace and with joy? Are you actually happy with the life that you have? Are you full of joy in this life that God wants so desperately to bestow upon you? And I think the reality of it is, is that most of us, myself, I know this so often, I know when I'm not living in the Spirit because when I lay down at night, I go, what am I doing? I'm trying so hard, I'm striving, I'm fighting, I'm clawing to keep control of everything and to make the narrative of who I am so that everybody will just love me. They'll see me and they'll think, man, that guy's awesome. And I'm miserable because I would I just die a death again and again and again instead of just offering myself before the Lord and just saying like I die to me and let me walk in your way and it's, it's not going to be perfect God following Jesus is hard like it's really hard sometimes it's difficult but God it's worth it it is so worth it because there is a peace and a joy that I cannot explain even though like, I can't get everything I want. Even though at times I have to lean into mystery and just say, like, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's not what I would pick. This isn't where I would choose to live in August. You know, I hate it. I hate it in August. It's so humid. But God, it's good. Jesus is desperately wanting us to see that good life and not in the ways that we define it, but in the way that he wants to define it in the way of the kingdom. He's inviting you into it, to live into it, but it takes cost to ask something of you. But it'll be better than you could ever dream or imagine, I promise you that, because I stand here in front of you as a product of that. This is what Jesus is talking about in discipleship. And as we come to the table, like this is what we're coming to receive is a moment and a space 
as the band plays and we take the elements is to reflect upon and to think through and to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, to, to reach out and to touch and to taste something that God wants to offer you so that your life can be as profound as you. There's this thing inside of you that you know it's supposed to be different. You know God is supposed to be near to you. And then there's a million stories in here just with like 60 people or whatever it is. Because like, we all have all these stories that we could tell and retell that like we wrestle through and that we're, oh, you know, like it's hard. But God longs for you to give your life to him in this kind of way. Like it is so worth it to be reshaped and reformed into something else. And as you come to the table, you're called in scripture to reflect on these things, count the cost. Reflect and know what it is you're coming to receive, the why, the how, the what, all of it. And you come and you receive these elements. And in that you are nourished and something's happening inside of you that is a profound mystery. That God is present here with us in some way as we receive this. His body and his blood is here and his spirit fills us up and it changes us somehow. Just by this simple act, I believe that it's true. It's why we do it every Sunday. I believe that God meets us here, and when he meets us, like, this is the beautiful thing, is that, like, something has to happen. The Spirit convicts and consecrates, or you reject it, right? Like, that's, like, the old thing. I think in a lot of ways, it seems really simple, but it's true. Like, every time you encounter God, like, something has to happen. Decisions have to be made. So that's what I'm inviting you to in this moment, is to come and to, to process, to think through, reckon with the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, to be honest with yourself. If for the first time maybe ever in your life, ask yourself, am I honest about my own story, about who I am, about what I need? Am I willing to open up and be completely naked and vulnerable? Am I done hiding? Am I done covering myself up? Am I done living in shame even before the Lord? And am I willing to come and to be completely open before him and to receive what it is he would have for us? Because this is the gifts of God for the people of God. His body broken, his blood poured out in order that we might be able to partake in this life and to find wholeness, and to find joy, and to walk out of shame, and to know that death has been defeated. I need that this morning. I need to be able to know that there is victory over death, because if I'm being honest, I'm tired of dying again and again. I'm tired of it. I want to give myself to this life in a different kind of way. And I want us to be a community and a people that do that together that take this serious, that are unwilling and unwavering from the depth and the profundity that it is the life and the kingdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would stop trading it in for shallow and empty images and projections of what we think life is supposed to be, but we would drink deep of the well of life of Jesus Christ. Come, take the elements, hold on to them, and I'll come back and lead us in the receiving of these as we take from one bread and one cup together as one body. Amen.